Hey friends, welcome to another episode of That Sounds Fun. I'm your host, Annie F. Downs. So happy to be here with you today. Hey, the music in the background is from our good buddy, Mr. Drew Holcomb. Make sure you grabbed a copy of his new album, Dragons. And today's show is brought to you by The Adventure Project. As you know, I love to lift up and encourage others and point y'all in directions of things I think are really cool. So I want to tell you about a charity working in Africa that's doing just that. They're called The Adventure Project. Founded by two women who met in Liberia, they realized what parents living in poverty wanted most was a good job so they could afford to send their kids to school. So these ladies decided to create a charity focused on job training, but not just any jobs. The Adventure Project focuses on jobs that uplift communities with life-saving needs. Jobs like training people to become well mechanics, to keep water wells flowing, mentoring farmers with the tools and skills to grow more food, and educating women to become community health workers to care for pregnant moms and their babies. Your gifts multiply as you help parents to escape poverty for good while serving their neighbors. So if you're like, hey, I believe in that, jobs are the best way to lift people out of poverty, head on over to theadventureproject.org slash Annie to become a member of their collective monthly giving community. Each month, your heart will explode with happy as you receive a new story about where your gifts are going and who you're helping. Plus, the first 100 That Sounds Fun friends will get a free adventure tee. So go sign up now, theadventureproject.org slash Annie. Today on the show is one of my very favorite guests. Y'all hear me quote him all the time. You know that I'm such a fan of his work and his preaching in the church he has in Portland called Bridgetown Church. It's our good friend, John Mark Comer. His most recent book that has just come out is called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And I absolutely, shocking no one, I absolutely loved it. And I think you're going to love this conversation. So here is my chat with our friend and one of our favorite pastors here on the pod, John Mark Comer. I don't like my voice. Do you like your voice? Is that a thing? (laughs) Well, I mean, what choice do we have? We just have to hear it. Well, I know, but I, I just for me, everything is always not good enough. Yeah, and yeah. so, you know. Um, That's also your Enneagram one, buddy. Hey, hey, we keep that on the DL now. <laughs> you know my whole new thing about Enneagram. No, I, I don't new, know your whole new thing about Enneagram. Oh, I'm I'm in rebellion. I'm Are like, you? I'm, I'm, I'm reacting. Okay, yeah, tell me I'm, everything. Well, okay, so I still really like Enneagram. So I, I guess I came to Enneagram like seven years ago. Yeah, you were an my, early adopter. For, well, not only an early adopter, it came to me through my therapist, mm-hmm. who is like a you know seventy year old PhD guy, and um, then it was how many years ago was it that it got monetized? Five years ago, four yeah, years probably. ago, yep. And then it just you know exploded. It had been around for decades, but very kind of cloak and dagger, you know. And when it got monetized, a couple of things happened and changed really fast in how people came at it. One of the major ones was. Before that, you were not really supposed to tell other people your number because it wasn't used as it's being used now as like a theory of personality for interpersonal relationships. I uh-huh. hate it for that. Uh-huh. It was used for spirituality and for spiritual formation, like how to, you know, address your sin, your wound, your personality, ingrained habits of, you know, wounding and brokenness in you, and to grow toward love and maturity. And to like help paint a picture of Christ likeness through you. So like in traditional Enneagram theory, like before it was all monetized, if you're like a Jesuit priest in 1984, first off, if you're in spiritual direction, your spiritual director would use, this is my understanding, would use Enneagram to give you direction, like to help, but he would not even tell you about the Enneagram. You'd never heard that word. You didn't know your number. You didn't know anything about it. He would just, or she would just kind of discern like, oh, you're likely this kind of a person and then use that to kind of guide you in prayer and guide you in your spiritual journey. Then often five or 10 years into direction or however long, if they felt that you were mature enough to receive that, because think about that. I mean, Enneagram, like it's an identity thing. It's a brutal, like laying bare of your soul. You have to have like a level of maturity. Like my 13, my 14 year old boy is begging me to tell him his Enneagram number. I know exactly what he is, but you know, <laughs> and we, we refuse to talk to him about it. Yeah. Cause I don't, I mean, a 14 year old is not ready to receive this part. And if he receives it now, he'll miss all that. You'll miss the self, you know, actualization part of it. So when you were ready to receive it, then they would, you know, kind of 
expose you to this framework and this idea. And then you weren't allowed to tell people because for all sorts of reasons, it could be weaponized. People yeah. view you differently. You could judge other people. I remember when I asked this late 60s, early 70 year old Jesuit priest who has been teaching Enneagram for like 30 years or something. And he's just, he's a local legend in Portland. I love him. I've gone from spiritual direction. And at one day, you know, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, I think he's a five or whatever. And I just asked him, hey, what's your Enneagram number? You, he literally backed up against the wall, <gasps> covered his arms over his chest and looked down at his toes and very awkwardly said, uh, I'm sorry, we don't say. You thought I would have <gasps> just asked him like, how much money he makes or some super inappropriate sexual question. Right. Or, you know, it, it was just like one of those, you just don't ask people that. I don't say any downs, how much money do you make or right. any downs. How, like, you just don't ask those questions, you know? And I thought, oh, that's a major generational shift in Enneagram theory. And I guess just because of the pastor thing, I see, I keep seeing it getting weaponized. Yeah. And I'm sick and freaking tired of people labeling each other, judging each other's motivations. And our church is overall, I think, really healthy. But if I hear one more person say, oh, that's such a seven thing, yeah. or I can't handle, the, I have too many fives in my community, or we just had a divorce we heard about from somebody who said, I can't be married to a five. <gasps> You're lying. And, I, and I'm like, this is the, the, the non-Christian word for that. It starts with a B and then it goes to an S. Like, this is just yeah. not... You know, so I guess I still love it for spiritual formation, but even there, the, the trick is, you know, all the personality theories, it's like they reveal part of who we are, but they also conceal part of who we are. Mm. And that, that makes me like Enneagram inside, like I find Myers-Briggs just as helpful as Enneagram when it's used appropriately. Like yeah. you actually get like a, a Jesus guru to walk you through Myers-Briggs. Yeah. And that one has way more data behind it. Mm -hmm. And I think it's more accurate to people's experience. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's, there's like, I did have this experiment the other day. I was at a, a little spiritual formation thing and they passed out like an Enneagram sheet and it was a new one that had like, you know, the list of like, your wound or your sins kind of thing in the column. And I just had this little experiment. I covered the left-hand side that had all the numbers and they were in an odd order. So uh -huh. I didn't know what order it was. And then I just looked at like the symptoms of sin and I underlined like all the ones that I identify in my body that I struggle with. Oh, wow. There were about uh, probably 30, there were about three or four that I didn't feel were true of me. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know what I mean? So like now when you look at my number, you know, it was like, oh yeah, those three or four things are like my dominant struggles for sure. But it's not like the other ones aren't issues for me. Right, you know? right, right. So it's, I mean, literally, I was just like, how many of these, if, if I didn't have this framework, how many of these, if I were to hear a sermon on, you know, vainglory or lust or domination or whatever, I would totally be like, oh man, cut to the heart. Oh, cut to the right. heart. Oh, I need to grow in this area. You know, and it was like, there was maybe three or four on there, you know, that like superficiality would have been like, yeah, I don't really struggle with that. It's yeah. not an issue. Everything else was like, yeah, that's, that's. So I think that's where it reveals and it conceals. Yeah. So I think inside as a, personal spiritual formation, spiritual direction tool. That's one of several tools for self-awareness. I freaking love Enneagram. It's mm -hmm. been really helpful as an identity, as a personality theory, as a way to do interpersonal relationships, as a labeling tool. I'm just, yeah, You're that's out. my soapbox. Yeah, so no, that's a, that's a good one. Because I, down. <laughs> I love it, John Mark. Um, I think that is one of the things that I have experienced as it's gotten more mainstream as well. And I am a person who has benefited emotionally, personally, because I didn't know about it until it was monetized. Right. And so how would you say to people who are just coming around to it or just coming away to it and have found it really helpful, but, but are noticing like, yeah, some of these Enneagram accounts are just stereotyping us or some of it's too far this, like how do you in your personal life, how do we balance this as a helpful tool, but it feels like it's too much everywhere? Yeah, I mean, I, my little, I don't know, off the cuff thing would be one, if you get into it, get all the way into it. So the way the Enneagram works, as you know, is like, there's nothing worse than somebody who knows just enough to be dangerous. About right. It, you know, right. Like the people arguing with me on Instagram, like, oh, I'm a four with a eight wing or whatever. I'm like, that's not a thing. Yeah. Know, but, <laughs> and, 
Or like, I literally had somebody arguing with me on Instagram the other day saying, you're not a, what I identify, you're, you're a seven. I'm like, uh, no, I'm not. So he's like, no, yeah. you are. You're confused. You mistyped yourself. And I'm like, like, who are you? We don't right. even know each other. You know? Right. So, um, one, I would say, if you get into it, get all the way into it. Like take, you know, months of your life, read multiple books, listen to multiple podcasts, sit through a weekend conference if you can really get your head and your heart into it. And don't do it unless, don't do it as like a gag. Do it when you are, have the emotional and temporal space to actually explore the full terrain of your personhood with God and community. Mm. Two, I would say, don't take it as an identity. It is not who you are. It's one lens on what your spiritual journey will look like. Three is, uh, if I could go back to my pastoral self five years ago before we started running, or however many years ago before we started running Enneagram conferences at our church, I would say, um, why don't we just create a church culture where we're fans of the Enneagram and we use it, but we don't really um, talk about our numbers unless if it's with people that we're super close to. Like mm. my theory is I only want to talk about it with people that are going to be dealing with my shadow side on a regular basis. Uh. So wife, best friend, maybe my really like, you know, Bethany or some of my really close coworkers. Yeah. Other than that, because I don't want to, I don't want to like label somebody. I don't want to be like, Oh, that's Annie. She just changed the subject because she wants to run from her pain. Right. Or, you know what I mean? <laughs> right. I don't want to like, and again, some that's my psychosis. I'm, you know, but I don't want to know people's death. I, I, and because often with Enneagram, like the, the clearest way to identify somebody is always through their sin, mm. not through their virtue. Mm -hmm. That's why like older people, you, nine times out of 10, you can't figure out what you can't label them because they've matured and they've grown right. into their best self right. and they have these virtues that they offer, but like they're just whole, healthy, beautiful people. They've moved to balance. They've moved toward integration. The people that were like, Oh, that's such a three or, Oh, that's such a whatever. It's generally their sin or immaturity that we identify. So mm -hmm. I don't know that I just want that, that lens on me. Yeah. You know? I'm not sure a lot of people are like, have been set when they call out other people that they're going, Oh, you know, I know you're a seven because this is so fun. <laughs> it's usually like, Oh, do you not want to feel pain? Oh, okay. That's why you're doing that. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. And also remember, Annie, you have the type that all of us want. You have the best type. And they say there's not a best type. That's ridiculous. There's totally a best type. And it's the seven. As long as you don't end up as a drug addict on the streets, you are the best type. Right. You know? Hey, but you know, I, and you know some of this in my real life, but you know, when I deal with pain, I can run pretty fast. And that is where the Enneagram has been helpful for me, where I go, oh, I know what I'm doing now. And I used to not mm -hmm. know what I was doing. Yep. And now it's I so get it. Yeah. So don't get me wrong. I'm not, I, I find the Enneagram has been incredibly helpful in my life. And I'm so grateful to see it in my friend's life. I just, it's not, it's not the use of the Enneagram I have an issue with. It's the abuse of it. Right. And I oh, just feel good. like there's so much abuse of it right now or, or just unwise use of it. Mm -hmm. um, maybe it's just a, a more generous word that I'm like, mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what we'll see is in 10 years, 15 years, when the coolness of it dies off, will people still find it a helpful spiritual discipline like fasting or like prayer or like, you know, like, will it, will it align with other things that actually walk us toward God? Yeah. Well, I kind of, I mean, the way I'm looking at it and tell me what you think of this, because it might be terrible, but I'm, I'm wondering if it should be the kind of tool that we use for a season of our life, say three to five years, just that's an arbitrary number that would depend on each personality and each person's journey and how much time they have to give to it. But I'm thinking of it more like, like I remember when I first came to disc test, uh -huh. it was so incredibly helpful. And that's one that's way less popular right now. I actually have found it by far the most helpful in uh, interpersonal work relationships. Yeah. Cause it talks about, you know, like that and, and you know, specifically with my personality, it was so helpful. I spent a couple of years thinking about it, getting training on it. There's some, uh, like the beauty of DISC tests is it helps you understand how to do conflict and how to do like um, interpersonal work relationships with people that are very different from you. Mm -hmm. And it was really intimidating at first because it's a lot of relational skills to master. But I sat with it for a couple of years and I, I'm sure I could go back and learn a lot more, but it was really helpful. But I don't sit around thinking, oh, I'm a DC. And this is because right. I'm a DC, da, da, da. And under stress, my C goes up and da, da, da. 
you know, like it's just, it was a helpful tool. It gave me self-awareness. Now I understand better. I'm motivated by task. I'm a detailed person and I need to be, you know what I mean? And other mm. people are motivated by excitement and relationship and safety. Okay. So I need a, this is this. So that's in my muscle memory now, but I don't have it as an identity. I don't think about it very often. It was more like it was really helpful for a season in self-awareness and growth. And now I keep moving forward. So I wonder mm. if Enneagram is one of those things that, you know, not that when I'm 65, I will have forgotten my Enneagram number, but like you spend a really intense, you know, season of time, whether it's a decade or a couple of years or whatever, like really working through this. And then you carry that self-awareness with you, but you kind of, kind of move forward. I don't know. What do you, what do you think of that? Is that? I think that sounds good? brilliant because I can see a world where, uh, for me, and I'm probably on year four, of knowing my Enneagram and really like studying it and learning it. It it does feel like I either need to go all the way in and do the, like the, the spiritual retreat level of sevenness or be done, be like, okay, I learned and I grew. Cause how many more times do I need to say that on my worst days I run from pain? Like, okay, we get it. I get it. That's what I do. What more is there for me to do around that? Yeah. Yeah. What I, what I keep coming back to, um, I've become a huge fan of Enneagram Institute. Do you follow yes, them at all? Yes. Yeah. They email me every morning. Yes. So their email is, is super helpful. And um, it's, I think it's the only like daily email I subscribe to. And um, I have it. I don't have any email on my phone. So I started, uh, I started an email account just that as a little app on my phone. And that's the only email I get. So there's no other distraction or anything like that, but that way I can have it on my phone every day. (laughs) So I love that. And my, but my favorite thing from those guys and gals is, um, their seven levels of health. Are you familiar with that? Um, no, I haven't seen that. Oh yes, yes, yes. Cause the five. Yeah. Yep. I do know. Yep. Yeah, and you can get it on their website. So if you go to enneagraminstitute.com or whatever and you you dink around, you know, and you find whatever number you identify as and you scroll down, it's there. And they have, for each of these numbers, they have these basically, I think they call it seven levels of health. Maybe it's different language. And my therapist gave this to me before it was online, like six years ago, something like that, when we were only a couple months into Enneagram. And it still is my all-time favorite, like, like resource i have it printed out in a file like old school like a manila (laughs) file i only have a couple of them it's right next to me it's a foot away from me right now in my in my little drawer and i pull it out regularly because it has like it basically charts for me one way of thinking about what my spiritual journey into Mm. formation into a person of love and joy and peace is and so it shows you like you know i think level seven is I forget which way it goes, but level seven's like you at your worst, you know? Yeah. And so I'm basically like a, a sociopathic murderer and I commit suicide. Sure. And then me at my best, and I'm basically Nelson Mandela in his elderly years <laughs> or whatever, you know? Like, not that I'm him, but you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it, it shows that journey, and, and you can kind of, in a non judgmental way, plot yourself on there a little bit. And of course, you know, it depends on is this a day when I'm doing good or a day I'm under stress? Very different person. But, um, I love that. And that's what, that's what I love about Enneagram. And I think I will come back to that for many years. Like what's okay. Let me just remember what's the journey look like for me mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and what does it look like? Who's the kind of person? Cause it's so helpful for me, especially like, you know, in my jealousy of all things seven to look at somebody like you and be like, yeah, but they're so happy. And they just bring joy into the room. They light people up with encouragement and I'm not like that. Da, 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 da. Yeah. And just to remember that you at, at your best, most mature, mature, most Christ-like self 30 years from now, 40 years from now, are going to offer to the world and the kingdom of God something beautiful and unique that's different from what my best self 30, 40, 50 years from now is going to offer to the world and the kingdom of God. Mm. And um, and we need both and we and many others. And so I, I love that part. That That's it. That's still deep affinity in my heart at that stuff. Put together your conversations on this cultural moment with Mark and our particularly American Christianity's desire for something like Enneagram and tell me why we want that so bad right now. Oh, man, maybe you're expecting too much of me. Um, (laughs) No, I just want you to brainstorm. You don't have to have the right answer. I just wonder if there's a reason why this matters so much to us right now and you're doing the work of learning about culture and faith at the same time. Yeah. I mean, 
I think you could view it through a positive and a negative lens. I think through a positive lens, I think that in spite of the secularization of our culture, there's a deep spiritual ache, which is why Enneagram, I think, is popular outside of the church as well as in. And um, I think there, and I think it's why you see Enneagram often is, you know, either influenced by or corrupted by, depending on your value system, Eastern religion, mysticism, Hinduism, Buddhism, you see a lot of that stuff come in to the Enneagram world. And I think, I think since the 70s, since the 60s, since the Beatles went to India, there's been this sense, oh, secularism, modernity, scientism, not science, but scientism, mm -hmm. this hyper-evolutionary, brutally nihilistic human beings or animals view of the world. It just, first off, it doesn't correspond to the reality of the human condition. Yeah. And it doesn't even acknowledge a soul, much less nurture it and grow it into love, right? Mm -hmm. So I think, I think at a positive level, it represents the failure of secularism to bring the soul alive and the deep ache in Christians and non-Christians for God, for a life of the soul, for mm -hmm. transformation into love, you know? Um, on the negative view, I do think that some of the abuse of the Enneagram um, just plays right into some of the broader cultural currents of tribalism. I mean, you could view the Enneagram almost as like nine tribes, you know, oh, wow. and our desire to label people, to judge other people, to other people, you know, whether it be right, left, or along racial lines or political lines or whatever. And I definitely think that, you know, this is always so tender to talk about especially in our political climate, especially as a, a white dude. But I think, um, and I'm not referring to the racial stuff at all, honestly here, but the, the level of victimization in our culture, mm -hmm. the ressentiment, as James Davidson Hunter calls it, and um, the, the default setting across all sorts of people to really want to play the victim. And, you know, um, I think it plays, which, and there's truth in that. And that's what yeah. makes it so compelling. That's what makes it so hard to argue with. Cause at some level we're all victims, you know, and some of us way more than others. And that's what yeah. some of the racial conversation has been so helpful to understand that man, it's been so good for somebody like me to hear yeah. that. But I think that there's an innate human thing, um, setting all of that aside, that I struggle with, that I think all of us struggle with, of the ability to play. Like I literally had a Christian spiritual formation thing. I was at an Enneagram, pass out this Enneagram thing. And it it was fully, you know, you hear some of the Enneagram teaching that basically wants to link all of your junk to your childhood wound. Right. And I'm, and I'm just like, okay, that's, first off, that's unbiblical. That's contrary, like Orthodox Christian doctrine, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. which basically says that I could have the best possible parents in the world and I would still... <laughs> have stuff, right. you know, ancestral sin as the, as the early church fathers and mothers called it. So, um, while I think there's truth in that wounding childhood and in particular, it's way more acute from people that don't come from privilege a thousand by, by a massive margins. So I absolutely acknowledge all of that, but I do think there's some cultural things there. And then finally, I think it's just a tool. Like, I think it's so weird. Like we're all addicted to our phones we're all over busy. We're all in a hurry. It's killing our spiritual life. So I think that anything that helps us slow down and actually connect with God and our soul is really appealing to people. It's so yeah. weird to me. Some of the churches, like I was talking to this pastor the other day, and they just went to 45 minute long church services. And it was um, oh, it's wow. not a pretty, like he, he had a he's a smart guy, had reasons for it. Uh, that's really interesting because we've gone the exact opposite direction. Our church services are almost two hours long. I was thinking about Hillsong, which is a, a very different kind of church. Their church service is like two and a half hours long. Are they really? You know? Oh, yeah. I mean, like you go, that's that's your whole night, you yeah. know, and or morning or whatever. I thought, man, that's so, it's like the opposite of the kind of mega consumer in and out kind of thing. we got yeah. easy parking and you can be in and out of church in an hour and 10 or whatever. Yeah. And I, and I was thinking, why is that? Because I don't think that, you know, millennials or whatever are less consumeristic. If anything, I think we're more. I, I think, and why is singing like so being used by God, Bethel, Hillsong, I mean, you name it. Why is singing becoming such a core spiritual discipline for millennials? I think that part of it is it's one of the only places where people can actually get free of their phones and be present in the moment and actually oh, encounter wow. God. And so I wonder if things like singing, long church services, 
Enneagram, their invitations in our crazy, busy, distracted word world of hurry and superficiality to actually like meet God in the soul. And I, I think there's an ache there that uh, is really encouraging to see people move in that direction. I did a thing yesterday that was um, things we want to say to current pastors about the next generation. And oh, whoa, I want to hear that. It was real. It's it's a cool. Yeah, I'll send it to you when it's done. It's I was just a little part of it. But one of the things I said is like, we just have to keep teaching scripture because people actually want boundaries. Yeah. Like they actually do want to be told what is true and what is not true. We want to be asked to sit in church for two hours. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it, we yeah. don't want everything to be soft and easy and and built to to feel simple. You know, I was reading up about I was reading the other day and it said when you have a puppy that you need to um, you need to make some things challenging for the puppy or it will never be strong. Wow. And I was wow. like, oh, that's like, that's what the next generation wants from us as leaders is they actually want us to tell them what it's like, what it will take to be strong, not just make it, not just make church easy and palatable. Oh, man. I, yeah, I could not agree more, you know, and it's so counterintuitive. Like Mark uh, Sayers that I do that podcast with, he's, um, he said it to me just a day or two ago. Uh, we were chatting yesterday, actually. And uh, he said this to me multiple times, but that if you study like moves of God down through history, the move of the spirit is almost always counter to the move of kind of the spirit of the age or the cultural currents. Mm. So if our culture is moving toward superficial, quick, easy, instant gratification in and out, the spirit is likely moving toward deep, slow, unhurry, you know what I mean? Yeah. Sobriety kind of thing if everything's moving toward sexual release and no boundaries and self-definition and nobody tell you what to do, then the spirit is likely moving toward a new wave of holiness or whatever the wholeness, whatever language yeah. you want to use, you know? So I, I do think there, and, and even just at a logistical level, like, and I'm, I'm not remotely saying this to commentate for or against, so this is not my app, this is not my endorsement or critique, but I think it's fast. The Jordan Peterson phenomenon last year, I thought was fascinating that here's a guy, public intellectual, who writes a book called 12 Rules for Life. I mean, can you right. think of a less millennial word? Than <laughs> right, rules? right. You know what I mean? Like this is the antinomian generation that like throw off every rule, every boundary, do whatever the hell you want to do. And I mean that as double entendre, right. right? Like do it all. Like this is the anti-rule. Like this this makes the boomer 60s anti-rule people look like not, that was a warm-up to our anti-rule. Don't <laughs> even tell us anything about who we are. And Jordan Peterson publishes a book called 12 Rules for Life. He's an intellectual nobody's ever heard of from Canada, right? And he's condemned by pretty much every single media outlet in the world, uh -huh. right and left. And he's, he's slandered. All sorts of things are said about him that aren't even true. He's labeled as all these horrible things. Almost all elites write him off. The conservatives don't. The liberals hate him because he's not left enough. The uh -huh. conservatives don't like him because he's not actually a conservative. Right. And right. He's just absolutely ostracized. And for over a year, don't correct me if I'm wrong here. I think he has the number one best-selling book on Amazon in the world. Oh my gosh. It's the best-selling nonfiction book in the world for like a year and a half or something crazy mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. that. You know, don't, mm -hmm. don't, you know, go do the fact check of what exactly it was, but it was something to that extent. And I'm just like, Okay. So it's like, it's like, there's something else that's going on below the public perception. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and that, that is always, that, that just to me is a sign. Again, I'm not endorsing that. I'm just saying that's a sign to me that there is a counterintuitive like ache for something deeper. You know what I mean? Yes. And so you're sensing the same things, what you're saying in the church world. Yes, I am. I think so. And I think the other, I mean, also counterintuitive, I was talking to Emily Lay yesterday. I don't know if you know her. She actually creates planners and okay. she and she has a, a line of planners at Target, but she has a new book out about slowing down. And Rebecca oh, Lyons has on. a new book out about slowing down. And you have a book out and Jefferson Bethke has a book out. And it just says to me, like, the Holy Spirit is stirring something that we need to hear. Like, yes. th this isn't accidental. This is incredibly intentional that four loud voices in in the church world are saying we have to slow down. Yeah. 
Why do you think that is? I mean, let's say your book title, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. But why do you think that is? Why is the Holy Spirit doing that right now? Well, I mean, my case would just be that hurry or whatever you want to call it, busyness, speed, digital distraction, you know, this cluster of things that come together. And I just kind of put under the rubric of hurry, um, which is, you know, my short definition of that is too much to do Mm -hmm. and not enough time. And so we have to speed up our mind and our body and our relationships to a pace that is incompatible with the love, joy and peace of life in the kingdom of God. Mm. So that's my short, I guess, working definition. And um, I I just think, you know, the attempt to name one enemy for all the ills of the world, you know, I think is always a fool's errand. Life is extraordinarily complex. But I think that one of the main issues that we're facing right now is hurry, busyness, digital distraction, the phone, overfull life, you know, materialism is part of it, all that comes together into just this life of too much, too fast, and not enough time. And I think that um, it kills not only emotional health, which is key, because if we're not emotionally healthy, we can't be loving to the degree that we want to and Jesus wants us to be. Mm-hmm. But it kills spiritual life. You know what I mean? Rollheiser, I don't know if you read, do you read Bono Rollheiser at all? Only once. I Not on the regular. And what did you read? Oh, um... His famous book is Holy Longing. It's not my favorite by him, but it's the one that he's best known for. Um, he has a book that I pass around to all of my 30-something friends. It's it's no good for younger listeners, but once you have like adult responsibility has been uh-huh. on you long enough that you're perpetually tired, you're not ready for this book. Yeah, so what's it called? Like, if that's kid number two or podcast number 150 right. or whatever it is. Once it's like you don't feel onward and upward, you know, and you just feel like you've entered the the the, the first signs of what people would later call middle age, you yeah. know, just the, the the boredom and tiredness of responsibility and duty. Um, man, he has this beautiful book called Sacred Fire. Anyway, in Sacred Fire and in some of his other stuff, he has this great line about how we are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion, mm-hmm. oblivion through what he calls pathological busyness. You know, and there's a healthy kind of busyness that's like, we just have a lot to do. And, and that's, I think we see that in the life of Jesus. That means I think that we're giving our life to something that matters, giving our life to agape, not wasting it, playing Call of Duty for hours a day or whatever, you know. Um, but then there's a, that, that's a very, uncommon, there's a far more common type of busyness that I think is toxic to the soul and to spiritual life where we just have way too much to do, not enough time to do it. Our life is over full. We live this life of speed, superficiality, distraction, escapism, Mm -hmm. stress. And so what comes out of us, you know, I mean, hurry, like just the most basic thing, if the telos of the spiritual journey with Jesus is to become a person of love as defined by Jesus, as defined by agape, not as defined by secular culture, but agape, self-giving, joyful, um, creative, generous, love to will the good of another ahead of your own as you delight in them like that that vision of love hurry is incompatible with love like my worst Mm. and most unloving moments are all when i'm in a hurry like if you were to webcam you know hidden camera chase me around for a week all of my worst moments would would pretty much be with people that i'm closest to that's a whole conversation and with uh, and, and when I'm in a hurry, I, either when we're late and I'm trying to get my kids out the door to be somewhere, we're 20 minutes late or whatever, or when I just have too many things to do that day and my you know, son interrupts me or my daughter interrupts me because they need help with something or they're struggling with something. And I just don't have time because I have a Dallas podcast interview and then, right. I have this, and then I have these 19 things I have to do and get out of my office and da-da-da, you know, <laughs> all of my most unloving moments when I'm not compassionate, I'm not present. I'm not patient, I'm reactive, I'm easily angered or irritated or offended, I'm agitated, I'm oblivious, I'm non-empathetic, I'm not present to the person, I don't even see the problem, are all connected to her. How'd you figure that out about yourself and about all of us, truthfully? How'd you figure that out? <laughs> Being married and having kids. Ah. But, um, I don't know. Uh, how did I figure that out? I don't know. Um, I mean, I, I think it's it's... It's it's not like the most profound insight, you know what I mean? Um, I mean, it could be for people who are not very self-aware, though, John Mark. I mean, yeah. you know, like there are people who or people who have just been so busy, they haven't figured out how it affects other people. 
Yeah, I, I do think there's some people that get so busy, they don't even know who they are mm. without busyness. Right. You know, so it's like, it's like you adjust to this new normal. I mean, you and I are, we have a little bit of a gift in that we're of an age where we can remember a pre-digital world. Yes. You know, like I always say, because, you know, it's so funny, like millennials aren't as young as they used to be. Right. So, <laughs> right. Like you know, people talk about the millennials, the future church. And I'm like, uh, millennials are all about to turn 40. That's we're right. not like that young, you know, yep. so our church is just now starting to get the, you know, the digital natives are becoming now leaders in our church. And, you know, and woo, there's, there's some really significant changes, some yeah. of which are terrifying, like the digital addiction, others of which are actually really encouraging. They're a lot less, you know, cynical and stuff than we are mm-hmm. um, as a to stereotype generationally. Which is great. But because we're still allowed to do that. We, we can totally stereotype generationally. <laughs> That's right. Um, I think we have the gift if we can remember what life was like before the phone. So with with mm-hmm. digital natives, I'll often say like, I'm I'm so old I remember this thing called boredom. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And which is like a non existent thing. It's like this late nineties phenomenon, you know? Right. And so that's a gift, but I think we just speed up to this pace and it's often, we don't even know who we are until we begin to step into things like Sabbath, silence and solitude, rest, you know, Enneagram therapy, some of these things that begin to awaken us to the potential of who we actually are and who we could become if we're not hurried. And then you begin to see this drastic, you know, like one of the things that I, like I always pay attention to every year is how different am I with my family on vacation than I am during the year. Mm. And, and how there's always a difference. I'm always way better on vacation than I am because I'm not under stress. And all of us under stress are less than loving. Right. All of us right. in different ways. And so like the level of disparity helps me kind of realize like how, how radical I need to be in making changes for the year ahead. Does that make sense? Yeah. If I'm like way happier and more loving on vacation. And then a week later, I'm like back to my grouchy self. Once I come back to work, I'm like, Mm -hmm. ah, that's probably a sign that I'm not living well, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. How are you, are you guys intentionally teaching your children about boredom? Um, I wouldn't say we're teaching them like in the, the didactic sense. We're, I mean, we're pretty Luddite. So, you know, none of our kids have devices. I, I don't know. Yeah, I was about to say, I don't know what that word means. Sorry. Oh, yeah. Oh, sorry. Luddite is like uh, anti-technology. Got it. So um, we're not technically, it's, it's, a, it's a pejorative, like a true Luddite like is anti-technology. Okay. Um, it's, a, it's a pejorative thrown on people like you and I who critique technology even as we use it and uh. are very wary and suspicious of it. Yes. So, um, <laughs> very. Yeah, so some things like we've never owned a TV, which means less than it used to because we have laptops and stuff. We've never owned a TV. Um, last night, my son had his 14th birthday party and it was so hilarious. He got two of his friends to bring over TVs to our house. Like they're lugging <laughs> in these giant TVs because what he really wanted for his 14th birthday was to play like some video games on a pro- on a TV. Oh, we, don't have, we don't have a video game system. We don't have a TV, you know? And so like, <laughs> 14th birthday, we're like, sure, do it. It'll be great, you know? Right. Um, but it was hilarious to see these like 14-year-old kids coming into our house carrying these like, you know, four-foot big old TVs or whatever. So right. don't have a TV. None of our kids have phones or devices. You know, um, what we've been saying, and we'll see what happens in real actuality, but is, you know, no phones until 16, no so no smartphones and social media till 18. Okay. Just just in time to like help them figure out how to use it before they go off to college. Sure. So it doesn't just overwhelm them. So, you know, stuff like that. We have we have a digital rule of life. Um and uh, meaning like we have some rules for the house, such as we parent our phones. Our parents, our phones go to bed at 8.30 each night. They don't live in our bedrooms. They live in a closet, plugged in and put away. And you call that parenting your phone. Yeah, I think I stole that language from Andy Crouch. Have you read? Yeah. I don't know why you would, but his little TechWise family. No, I totally book. did. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I did. Great. I think maybe I stole that language from him. I can't yeah. remember. Let's credit him either way because he's just brilliant and right. wonderful. Yeah, if I think something about technology, I usually credit him or you. I just am like, it's probably one of the two of them that said this to me. So well, go, go with him. I mean, he's, oh gosh, he's such a gift on so many levels. But um, uh, I had such a good time, by the way. I was sitting, so maybe twice a year, I'll have lunch with John Ortberg, who's yeah. a mentor of mine. And I did this massive like road trip with my son when he turned 13 a year ago down uh, the West Coast, Highway 1. We camped because in California, you can camp in October, November, which is right. amazing. 
And we ended in the Bay Area, which is where I grew up. And my dad met us there. And we did this like heritage tour of like my, you know, grandfather's grave and the house we grew up in and the church we came to faith in. Like these like, you know, key moments talking about what it means to be not just a, a, a man, but what it means to be a comer. It was, just, it was very, sure. it was a dude thing. So mock us all you want. But no, no, no. I think it's brilliant. I saw Beautiful. John Tyson did a similar thing. Yes. Yeah, well, absolutely. I'm just following his lead. hundred yeah. percent. So anyways, part of it, uh, you know, I, we scheduled a lunch with John Orberg and I had my son with me. And so I was going to give him the first 10 minutes to ask a couple questions of, you know, JL about, you know, masculinity, spirituality, Christ-likeness or whatever, which is, I mean, what a gift for a 13 year old kid to get 10, 15 minutes to ask questions with John Orberg. Right. And Andy Crouch happened to be in town and oh was gosh. hanging with John and it was like, oh, I'll come along. I, I want to talk chat to John Mark about some things. So Andy Crouch and John Orberg rock up and I'm like, <laughs> the best lunch ever. And my yeah. 13 year old son gets to ask both of them questions about like right. how to grow. It was, it was an absolutely fantastic moment, both of those, what gifts they are. Anyway, I think I stole that language from him. Parent your phones, meaning if you're a parent, at least if you're a wise one, your your kids go to bed before you go to bed and they get up after you get up, mm-hmm. unless they're, you know, late teenage years or whatever. And um, there's a maturity there, you know, to, to live at so, so that you're not just run ragged. And so in the same way, we parent our phones, meaning they go to bed before us at 8.30. So the last kind of part of our night is, is not on our phone. It's not, it's very different other things. And then we, I don't turn my phone on until after I've actually had quiet time mm-hmm. with Jesus prayer stuff. I've, I've, I've blessed my children as they go off to school. And I've actually, for me, because I work in the knowledge economy, I've done at least an hour um, of work. So my phone is never on before 930. Yeah. And I try to get to 11 if I can, depending on the day. So um, I just, simple things like that, you know, and text message bundling and lots of different things that we have a, a rule of life that we're, trying to model for our kids and then Sabbath obviously is an anchor practice for our family. Right. So I guess, I guess it's more the caught, not taught thing. We're not sitting down and giving our kids lectures on slowing down. We're more just talking about it ad hoc and modeling and caught, not taught kind of stuff. Hey friends, just interrupting this conversation with John Mart to tell you about a new course offered from our friend Ian Morgan Cron. As many of you know, I'm a big proponent of the Enneagram and its role in developing self-awareness and fostering a life full of happiness and satisfaction. I love the conversation John Mark and I already had about the Enneagram and about where it can help and where it can hurt. And I think this is a great tool to go along with that. I also know that the Enneagram is a complex personality typing system, and most people don't have the bandwidth to become an expert. Fortunately, when you integrate even just the fundamentals into your everyday life, you can experience profound transformation personally and professionally. My friend and Enneagram expert, Ian Morgan Cron, has developed a course to help you do just that. His new course called Enneagram Made Simple teaches those fundamentals and offers practical tools to put what you learn to use, not only for yourself, but also with your family, friends, colleagues, and more. This course includes 14 on-demand video modules packed with aha moments about each of the nine Enneagram personality types, a downloadable workbook with helpful reference material and exercises to help you integrate the teaching into your everyday life, assessments to help you measure your progress and a scoreboard to make the learning fun, and three additional courses through Business Made Simple University designed to improve your leadership skills, better communicate with customers, and stop wasting money on marketing. So between now and midnight on Thursday, November 7th, Ian is offering you guys a BOGO, buy one, get one, so you can gift the course to a friend or family member, a colleague, a neighbor, whoever you wish, and you'll both get access for the entire year. Enneagram Made Simple will transform how you live and work, so don't miss this opportunity to live your best life as the real you. So buy the course today. It's at EnneagramMadeSimple.com. And now back to the show. for the people in your church, how would you, and for us listening, and for me, for my life, what does it look like for me to parent my phone when I don't live with a family? Do you know what I mean? Because like, if I put my, like, safety-wise, I can't turn my phone off because it's just me. Yeah. So what, you're like, no, Annie, you could just get an alarm system. I hear you. And that's what my dad says too, John Mark, but... (laughs) You know, I'm just, I'm trying to, no, I'm trying to listen attentively. I mean, I don't, I don't understand. I don't know. So do you need your phone next to your bed? Could it be like, it is not next to my bed. Yeah. It's not next to my bed. You know, or 
So I mean, I'd say a couple of things. One is an alarm system. That'd be great. Right. <laughs> Two is um, I, I I tend to have, um, a, 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 like, I love to turn off my phone. My phone is off more than it's on. You know what I mean? I turn it off actually for almost a day and a half every weekend. Like, so I, I'm weird. I'm, I'm me. I like, my wife's not like that. Um, she turns it off for Sabbath and stuff, but I'm, yeah. I'm, I know that it's, it's probably, I don't know, it's something about my personality or it's gotten into my muscle memory or something. So one of my encouragements to other people that really struggle being out of touch or offline is just get a home line and only give that number to like key people in your life. Mm. So like I have a friend who just like went out and rocked it, bought a phone, pays 30 bucks a month or whatever it is. And that way on Sabbath or, you know, at night or whatever, they don't have to worry about interruption. But the number of people that have that phone number is, you know, I don't know, 30 people or something. It's a very small number of just family, friends, if there was an emergency, something like that. So that seems like an easy solution. Most Mm -hmm. people can swing 20, 30 bucks a month, whatever it is. Or you just keep the phone in another room and it's still there available should anything bad happen. But um, not there to distract you. Yeah. I want to be better about, I mean, I've read all these books that have come out this fall. You know, I read yours. Thank you for letting me read it early. I read Jeff's. Yeah. I read, I mean, I've, I've gotten to read them all and I want that. It feels more challenging living a life alone currently than it feels like for a family. But I think that may be more of my fear of loneliness. Will you explain that to me? I'd love to understand that better. Yeah, I just think all the the suggestions, I was going to say rules, but all the suggestions everyone makes about slowing down their life and separating from your phone on a daily basis for a person, for a person in a family, that's really beautiful because it connects you with your family. For a person who lives alone, that is additional loneliness. Oh, wow. Got it. And so it's a discipline that I would like to have, but it is not a feeling I would want to feel. Got it. Yep. And I mean, do you feel that the phone is keeping you from flesh and blood relationships in Nashville. Like what if you just did more, I don't know what you do. Oh, you know me, buddy. I'm, I'm seeing people every day. No, no, no. It doesn't keep me. It is that it is the, it is the family only times. Do you know what I mean? It's the after 9 PM and the before 9 AM. Oh, got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. So that's when your phone is most helpful for you to connect with people that aren't in Nashville or whatever. Probably. Yeah. That's probably, I mean, yeah, I'm processing this very vulnerably and very publicly right now <laughs> with no, you for the great. first time. But yes, I think, I think what you're saying is true is that those hours, I, f- I don't feel as lonely in my life because of social media, but I don't yes. know that that's a good thing. So I guess a couple of thoughts come to mind. One is, you know, don't have any judgment on yourself. This all of the the spiritual disciplines in general and little disciplines like this that are obviously not from the life of Jesus. He didn't like teach us how to handle an iPhone, you know? Right. Um, I think they're all means to an end. And this is where religious people, be it Sabbath or be it, you know, parent your phone, you know, biblical or unbiblical, this is where, you know, the the religious spirit in all of us just goes horribly wrong and that we we forget that these are means to an end. Mm -hmm. So the end is not like, oh, I turn my phone off at 8.30 every night. The end is I'm becoming a person of love and joy and peace. I'm mm-hmm. living in awareness of the Father with me all through the day. I'm offering compassionate presence to people. I'm becoming a person of wisdom. I'm becoming comfortable in my own skin. I'm feeling comfortable with people and comfortable alone. I'm moving through the world blessed in Jesus' language because I'm in the kingdom of heaven. Right. No matter what is horrible and hard and difficult about my life, be it poverty or loneliness or whatever. So. That's the end goal. So at that point, then you start asking the question, what's the best means? And the means are going to be, there's going to be some common ones like Sabbath and others that kind of across the personality stage of life spectrum are great. And then there's going to be some other really unique ones that are like very unique to a single person or not even just to a family, but a family with little kids or a family with teenagers or an upper class family or a family in poverty. Like Mm -hmm. there's going to be unique ones that help each person, family, personality, relational status, Enneagram number move toward this end goal of, you know, Christ-likeness, of you, whatever you want to call it, of life mm-hmm. in the kingdom. So I think just remove all judgment. And then the other thing I would say is you just have to remember that there is a neurobiological addiction to this, like the dopamine thing, all the neuroscience. I'm sure you've read all that stuff. So like it doesn't feel good at first when you start implementing digital rules. It feels like, you know, going off heroin or going off coffee or, you know, whatever. 
it's but it's far worse than coffee. You know, they say it's on par with heroin. Some of them say I've read yeah. some studies arguing that. So you will face withdrawal symptoms. So I think what I always encourage people is don't knock it till you try it. So mm-hmm. so maybe just experiment, like in a non-judgmental, don't moralize it in a totally experimental. How do I become a more happy, loving, less lonely person? Just experiment with it. So just stick with what different ideas long enough for the neurobiology to calm down mm. and your brain to reacclimate. You know, because yeah. right now your brain is trained. Okay, it's nine o'clock. You're alone, Annie. You need to go to your phone. And that might actually be a great way to connect with people you love and da 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 da. Or that could be that could be doing something really unhealthy to you. And only you, I can't answer that. We have no right. idea. You seem, you seem wonderful to me. So I feel <laughs> by you. So I, I have no critique. But it might be it might be like you might want to just set a period of time, be it a month or yeah. three months or six weeks or whatever, and be like, I'm gonna try this thing yeah. for a period of time long enough, you know, for the, the neurobiological thing to to reacclimate and just and just see, you know, eight yeah. weeks from now, six weeks from now, seven weeks from now. If it, with whatever the new, you know, digital rule of life thing is, um, is life better or worse, you know, and then, yeah. and don't moralize it, just experiment with it. You know, I don't know. That's maybe what I would say. Yeah, that's good. And it, I mean, that was my experience with Sabbath is at the start, it felt like a ripping of something yes. from my life. Yes. And now it is something I crave. Yes. hundred percent. Yeah. Have you, um, have you heard people talk about the J curve? No. It's a, I don't know how I'd say it without being able to draw it. Like you could, if, if you're, if you're in a computer right now, just Google this, Google the J curve. It's a learning theory thing. Mm-hmm. So basically like when you begin to practice any or learn any new skill, habit, anything, they talk about the J curve, meaning like if you can imagine in your mind, uh, mind's eye, like a, a box with like kind of two axis points, you know, horizontal and then one vertical. And it's like, you start out kind of maybe halfway up. And then mm-hmm. it dips down for a oh, while. Oh, yeah, like a J. I got you. Yep. And then goes up. And the basic point is that normally when you start any new practice rhythm, whatever, you get worse at it before you get better. Oh, wow. And, and so, like, you might kind of enjoy your weekend and be like, oh, I have a great, I have a, I have a relaxed Saturday. It's not a Sabbath. It's, as we say in our church, it's not Isaac, but a lot of people say it's Sabbath-ish. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, it's Sabbath-ish. It's Sabbath. You know, it's kind of whatever. I do my stuff and, you know, I don't really Sabbath, but I, I enjoy my Saturday mornings or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then you begin to practice Sabbath. You might actually hate your Saturdays for a month. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, this is horrible. I'm totally weird because my phone's off or whatever, however you're doing it, you know? And then that's where what's so sad is then a lot of people throw in the towel on that's like right. week three. And I'm like, oh, you're just about to hit bottom. Like it might take you a couple months before you're like actually enjoying it. And then eventually if you stick with it a year or two later, your Saturdays are going to be the highlight of your week. But you have to go through the J-curve, you know. Mm-hmm. I think that's true of any of this. Stuff. Yeah, that's brilliant. Um, okay, I'll try it. We'll see. Uh, you haven't led me astray so far, bud. I, I, I feel loved by you, so no judgment from this guy. Right. Okay, which is, good. Which is saying something if you know my Enneagram. Though. Yeah. <laughs> I would never dare to think about your Enneagram ever again. Um, never again, Annie. Never again. Don't worry. Um, hey, let's talk for a second about you and Jeff starting a podcast together. Yeah. And doing a season of a show together. That, like, says a billion things to me about how we are on the same team and how it's not a competition thing. And it's a realization that there's a bigger story here. What made you, I mean, a, how do you have time to do this many podcasts? B what made y'all decide to jump in and do that? (laughs) Well, maybe it's not as virtuous as you think. Don't compete with Jefferson Bethke or you will lose. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Yeah. Get on his team or you're, you're going to lose. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe not true of you, but it's definitely true for me. You know, um, uh, yeah, no, I mean, it was, it was an odd thing. So it was a, kind of a hilarious thing. So I have this book coming out in hurry. It actually got the publication of it. It's a very long story. It was delayed almost a year and a half. So I actually wrote it several years ago. It was supposed mm-hmm. to come out a year ago. So it's kind of a long story. All good. Um, but I'm, I'm a little bummed that it took so long. And so this last summer, you know, you know, you go through that, like, shoot, I did it with you. Like, Hey friend who's famous, will you endorse my book? <laughs> um, and will you say something nice because you're awesome and um, it'll help my book. And this is just like Christian narcissism. So you have that little thing 
yeah. where you, you reach out and you were kind enough to endorse my book. So I reached out to Jeff. He reached out to me at the same time. Uh-huh. And I said, oh, I'd love to endorse your book. It'd be an honor. He said, oh, I'd love to endorse your book. It'd be an honor. We didn't know what our books were about. And so we emailed each other our books and we literally started laughing. Oh, They're I'm sure. Like, not only are they on the same topic, they both have red covers. They both have scratches on the red covers. And if you look at the chapter flow, they're eerily similar. Yeah. Like we both talk about Sabbath, both talk about science and solitude. It's like, it's kind of freakish. So I, my first reaction was like, this is why I'm not a Calvinist. There's no way this <laughs> so much that this other young dude who's way more famous than me has a book. Yeah. This is like, I've never been this excited about a book before of all my books. This yeah. is the one that I'm like, by far the most excited about and by far the most proud of, not in an in a arrogant way. But no, I, but you should be. Yeah. Really. Yeah. I'm really excited about this book. I really feel it's the best kind of work I've ever done, at least from that perspective. So um, anyway, but he was so gracious. It was actually his idea. And, um, and I loved it because it's, it's rather than compete or whatever, like the really, you're right. The bigger picture is, I think that the spirit of God is raising up a whole generation of people that, that are just saying, whoa, we, we need to approach hurry the same way we look at secularism or sexual immorality or whatever as a, as a pretty giant threat mm-hmm. to the future of the church, mm-hmm. to our own soul and life with God and transformation into people of love. And um, so, and Jeff's just wonderful. So yeah, we had a good time. I'm excited. And easy. We recorded it all in like two days or something. So yeah. it was just like, a, it wasn't, it was a pretty easy thing. We just scheduled some time this summer and set aside a couple of days and you know Jeff and I we both as you see in this podcast over talk and yeah. so it's not hard to go up get out of here 20 minutes just chatting because I'm like blah 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 no it's great and I I think that's a there's a real powerful statement y'all are making y'all are making a bunch of statements by doing this together but one of them is sometimes it's right to do one season of a podcast and it that just be it right like yeah. we're just gonna do 10 episodes and talk about this thing we're not trying to to build this 40 year show we just yeah, have a right. thing to talk about and here it is totally. and yeah. I, I think that's fun yeah well thanks Annie that means a lot from you I like it well yeah I mean if I labeled it fun John you, Mark, you win you, you know you know a little bit about podcasting you know well, a, a, a couple of people listen to your podcast and a few people kind of like you, you yeah know? it's it, uh, we have oh. some listeners it is so funny to me how many people tell me like how much they love your sermons, you and Bethany. I mean, I'm such a fan of her teaching. Uh, you guys need to hang out. You actually remind me a lot of each other. Really? So when are you guys, you guys going to hang out? I know yeah, I'm going to get mean, out there in 2020. I've already told uh, Liz Behan and I was like, Portland in 2020 has to happen. So yes, so, yes. yes. Say we have a guest room in our house. T and I would love to host you. We'll wow, get you the best good. coffee in the world and don't care if that's pretentious. It's true. <laughs> and I'll turn my phone off at 830 and not be alone. Da- <laughs> That's right, because our kids, our boys will be flirting with you like nobody's business. <laughs> hey, listen, I love kids. I can I can roll with them. Okay, so when we we're talking about the podcast, you said Ruthless Elimination of Hurry is your favorite book you've ever written. Yes. Why is this is. one your favorite? I don't know. Um, hmm. I think, you know, it's my fifth book, and uh, I have a, a perfectionist lens on the world that tends to um, sabotage a lot of joy in my life. So I'm working on that with Jesus. Mm. So every other book, even through this process as a writer, it's like you write the book and you're all excited to write it. And then it's super hard to write. And then you get to the end, you're like, Is that, what am I even doing writing a book? And then you get the editing process and then you just rip it apart with somebody smarter than you for, you know, mm. six months. And by the end of that, every other book, I was just like, this is trash, but it would be illegal for me to not turn this back in. So, you know, you follow through. So that's, that's, that's a, that's a dramatization. (laughs) But um, there is definitely a good riddance thing. I remember with, you know, you finished the edits on each of the previous books. This is the only book I've ever done that I liked more after the editing than before. Oh my gosh. Really good about, I don't know how much of that is therapy is working, how much of that is the book. Um, But it's a little different than my previous books. It's a little bit more journalistic and it's my um first kind of foray into writing about spiritual formation hopefully the first of many i want to spend I have one more book after this and then i want to spend about 10 years doing uh, writing uh, like this massive project around spiritual formation and oh. a ton of different books and teachings and maybe nonprofits. So I, have, I have all these dreams i want to do yeah. uh, starting in about two years 
So this is kind of my first foray into writing about spiritual formation, psychology, spirituality, the role of the soul, practices, rule of life. And um, it just felt wonderful to me. I think that's the place that I want to kind of really continue to cultivate and and research and hone and grow and mature and speak to in the church at large. So, yeah, I feel, and I just feel like, well, when I wrote it, I thought nobody else has written a book like this. This yeah. would be like a one. And then that's not true anymore. So, which is actually <laughs> wonderful. There are several other wonderful books about on similar topics, you know, with a similar kind of overall call to slow down. So, yeah, I just, I feel so weird. I don't mean in an arrogant way, but I feel really good about, I think it's a, really good book. It's actually. a really good book, John Mark. And I've never, ever thought that much less said that about it. Anyway, yeah, man, that's really fun too. Cause then you kind of feel like when you see it on a shelf, you don't go, Oh, there's these pieces. I wish were different. You go, man, I'm so yes. thankful I got to be a part of that existing. Yes. All my other books. I'm like, Oh, I wish I didn't have that chapter. Oh, I hate that. I said that, or, Oh, I didn't make it smart enough or, Oh, I, you know? Yeah. So I'm sure this book will have those moments, but overall, but not today. Like, yeah, I just I just got the hard copy, you know, and so I've been kind of flipping through it and reading a couple pages here and there. And there's a couple times I'm like, ah, eh, it's not very good. And there's a couple times I'm like, dang, yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, you're <laughs> the only great. author I read that has such a um, robust, um, not bibliography. What would you call it in the back? The notes, the notes you oh, write in the yeah. back. <laughs> yeah, footnotes. And yeah. yeah, I always keep note. like one hand back there because I love your footnotes that you do in all your books. Oh, really? Oh, good. Yeah, that's kind of my dream is that like, oh, sometimes I'll throw a little asides or a yes. little tangent or little one-liners in there. Yep. And I'm that kind of, I, I dream of a world where people will kind of, will actually look at the back. Yes. You know? Well, I live in that world. I keep one hand on whatever page of the notes I'm on and the other hand where I'm reading. Oh, that's so, awesome. Maybe, yeah. I, maybe I should put a couple of writers I love, put those notes at the bottom of the page. No, no, know? no, 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 hate, no, no. I hate how it clutters up the experience, yes. but... Yeah. Visually, you would never, that would never be a John Mark Comer move. You've yeah. set your brand yeah. too clean visually. Yes, that's right. Got to keep it minimalistic. That's right. Um, do you have any books coming up, Annie? Um, I have one due next week. So do, it'll be out. Do like due to turn in? Yes. First draft is due next week. So it'll be. Uh, um, a year or what? Yeah, a year. That's right. Um, do you do you follow my buddy Tim and the guys at the Bible Project? Yes. At all? Yes. I love them. Did you see their little series on wisdom? No, I haven't watched that series. It's really good. I think it's okay. three videos. They did a bunch. Of, I like their podcast. Their videos are amazing, but I, it's their podcast that I'm a, a big devotee of. Yeah. And uh, they did a great podcast series on the wisdom tradition. And one of the things I love that they they tease out in their videos and they go into in depth in the podcast is the, and, I, and this really corresponds with um, Dallas Willard's last book, which was like a popular version of his academic work around the disappearance of moral knowledge in Western mm -hmm. culture and philosophy. That's a deep rabbit hole. Mackie and John talk about this idea of chokmah, which is the Hebrew word for wisdom, I believe. Mm -hmm. And the idea of it as like a moral law to the universe, like just like there are physical laws like gravity or e equals MC squared or, you know, there's these physical laws to the universe that when you interact with them as laws, as reality, you can create ways to flourish and thrive. Mm -hmm. And when you attempt to transgress them, be that jumping off of you know, a roof or whatever, you, you die or you hurt yourself or you hurt other people. And, and they're arguing that basically chokmah or wisdom is there are moral and social laws to the universe as well. There are ways that we are designed to be human and to live in relationship and flourish and thrive and when we live in alignment with those laws, as they come to us through Proverbs or whatever, we flourish and thrive. And as we live you know, out of alignment or attempt to transgress them, we, we, we don't flourish. We live another way. So I, I love, that's the chokmah thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. And whether you're Christian or Muslim or skeptical or atheist, like the closer you get to chokmah, which from our perspective is how God designed human beings to live. For, you know, for a secularist, it might be how humans evolved to live over billions of years through da-da-da. However you get there, chokmah is chokmah. You know, we right. view it as a, a gift of God that's embedded in our created bodies. That's our perspective. But, um, yeah, I, so I love it. So it sounds like chokmah to me. It sounds great. Oh, man. Well, let it be, Lord. If I can get it done. <laughs> oh, you'll get it done. It'll, it'll, it'll get done. I just may not have the most fun the next two weeks. You, you'll yeah. love this, but I have a trip to Dollywood. Do you know what Dollywood is? No. It's in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. It is Dolly Parton's theme park. 
Oh my god! Wait, she has a like. That's a thing. Oh, like she actually has a theme park. It's amazing. Yes, and she built it in the really rural part of where she grew up, so that she could um, be a part of employing all of her neighbors. So it's oh like it's gosh. one of them. You would be interested to study it purely out of what one person can do for their culture, because she wow. empl- she has ended up employing thousands and thousands of people. Anyway, we won't dive oh into Dolly gosh. Parton. Everybody knows how I feel about her. But I have a trip to Dolly Parton in two and a half Where weeks. It's in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, which is like outside of Knoxville. Gatlinburg, Tennessee. Yeah. Oh and so I just have gosh. to have it done before I get to Dollywood is my rule. That's a, It's due to my publisher. We got to see that on Instagram. All oh, right. 100%. Now, I'm going to be looking yeah, you don't. Dollywood Instagram story fun. Oh yeah, it's great. I'm gonna actually send you articles about Dollywood because I think just for you to see the background of what her kind of impact, it's insane. Unreal. Yeah. Okay, so that leads me to our very last question, which fits perfectly because okay. that's so Dollywood is so fun to me because the show is called That Sounds Fun, John Mark. You've done this twice before. Uh, what do mm. you do for fun? Tell me what's fun these days at the Comer household. Oh my goodness. Well, it's fall and I, I like cooking in the fall. I've actually been getting into cooking the last few years. Uh-huh. And um, all plant based. Uh, for the most part, yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And fall is fun because I, I'm just barely kind of sort of starting to get into baking, which has always been like more my wife's domain. I've done mm-hmm. other stuff. So she has this recipe for these pumpkin muffins that are, they are, they are the, one of the best things I've ever had in my entire life. Okay. And so, um, I'm, I'm excited. Like Sabbath, we're making pumpkin muffins tonight. We're making pumpkin cornbread for Sabbath, which I'm super excited about with honey butter. Yeah. Can we, can we say that sounds amazing? That sounds fun. Yeah. So yeah, fall, I mean, fall is just gorgeous right now. I mean, it's not sunny and nice like California, but the leaves are insane right now. It is so beautiful. Like, I wish I could just show you a picture. It's so pretty and it's like cold, but not too cold. And it's just cold enough to start fires. We have a real wood burning fireplace. Judge me all you want. No, no, no. And um, so yeah, cooking fall fires, cuddling with my kids. That sounds fun. Have you gotten the liturgy book of um, Every Day Holy? Every Moment I Holy? Haven't. It's on my list. I'd l- I've heard it's wonderful. Yeah, because they have one of the liturgies in there is for the first fire of the year in your hearth. Oh, you're it kidding me. beautiful. Yeah, it's beautiful. Oh, that sounds so... Okay, that's just another reminder. Yeah, to you need to grab that one. I wish I could read all the books, Annie. I know. That is one of the things. I know this sounds silly, but that is one of the things I look forward to in heaven is I feel like at least I'll have unlimited reading time. (laughs) I think about that a lot. I think people will still be writing books. And so they will just, will be just eternally behind. Fine. I hope, I I hope people keep writing books. I'm going to go backwards first and catch up on the ones I wish I'd have done by now. Yes. Hey, thank you for being on the show again. You know, we're such big fans of you over here. So thank you for making time. It's an honor. And I don't say that lightly. You are such a delight to chat to. It's such a joy anyway, and such an honor to be on the show. Thank you. Oh, friends, don't you love him? I am just so thankful. Gosh, I'm so thankful for John Mark. I think he's so smart and so kind and gives a lot of perspective to some things I really care about. So I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as you know I did. His new book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, is out. So make sure you grab a copy. I think you're going to love, love, love this one. It is so It's such a good read, such a deep read. I think you're going to really enjoy it. So grab a copy of that and make sure you follow John Mark all over the place. Tell him thanks for being on the show and how much you appreciate him. Hey, if you need anything else from me, I'm embarrassingly easy to find. You know it, Annie F. Downs, F as in fast, because we're going too fast. Annie F. Downs on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all the places. Anywhere you may need me, that's how you can find me. I think that's it for me today, friends. Go out and do something that sounds fun to you, and I will do the same. And we'll see you back here on Thursday. Thursday. 